The Future of Smart, a project of Grantmakers for Education, will explore ideas at the intersection of education, equity, and philanthropy that point us towards a radical re-envisioning of our education system. We'll hear from those working at the edge of what's possible and explore what it means to support transformative change for young people and their communities. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Future of Smart podcast, a project of Grantmakers for Education. My name is Olka Joshi Hansen, Chief Program Officer of EdFunders, author of the book, The Future of Smart, and your host. There's a big question confronting educators, parents, community leaders, and policymakers as our education system continues to recover in the aftermath of COVID disruptions. What should the new normal of education look like? How can we use the interruptions of the last two years to more thoughtfully build back? Have you ever heard of the knowledge doubling curve? It's a method for calculating how much time it takes for the sum of human knowledge to multiply. Buckminster Fuller first proposed it in 1982, and his model showed that until 1900, human knowledge was doubling about every 100 years. By the middle of the 20th century, it was doubling every 25 years. As of 2013, human knowledge was doubling every 13 months, and in 2020, it was doubling every 12 hours. Every 12 hours. Think about that. And think about how it should affect what it means for someone these days to qualify as quote-unquote educated. How does it affect what should be happening in the first 12 years of a child's education or in college? What does it mean to educate a young person in a world where knowledge is quadrupling every single day? My guest today argues that the pace of progress in digitalization, that's all technology, robotics, artificial intelligence, virtual reality, augmented reality, automation, self-driving vehicles. This progress means that the future is now basically impossible for us to imagine. Robots and computers will soon be doing most of what schools have taught humans to do for the last few centuries. If artificial intelligence and robots can solve mathematical equations, read medical reports, write books, design and run experiments, play chess, compose music, and write poetry better than all but the most exceptional human beings, where does that leave the rest of us? And if most of the old skills are on their way out, what is the purpose of education? Since the 1700s, we've thought of school as the place we go to get necessary core knowledge and develop the skills that human beings will need in the world. If we don't need those skills anymore, do we still need formal education systems? Do we still need schools? My guest today argues that we do, but that education needs to be aimed towards a very different purpose. Along with many other thought leaders in education, he believes that the future of work and democratic society will demand a whole range of human capabilities. Things like learning to learn, self-motivation, collaboration, discernment, adaptability, and flexibility. These are things the conventional system was actually designed to ignore. In fact, it actively prevents young people from developing many of these deeply human skills by focusing so strictly on brain-bound learning, a phrase we explored with our Episode 2 guest, Annie Murphy-Paul. This focus on brain-bound learning happens during the same period when the human brain is most primed to develop its most deeply human skills, which is a different kind of learning. 
Education systems have always had to make difficult choices about which skills and knowledge to prioritize. Those debates used to be mostly about content. In recent decades, they've included which skills students will need. Along the way, we've standardized outcomes in ways that require us to pathologize or criminalize young people who deviate from these norms. This includes children who have experienced trauma or adverse childhood experiences, those who aren't white and middle class, and those whose brains are wired to experience the world differently. With AI, speech-to-text, and computing soon to be widely accessible in the workplace, our priorities for education need to change radically. In a volatile world defined by complex, interdisciplinary challenges, how can education harness the varied abilities of learners and allow the differences we once stigmatized to become strengths? Human skills are those that enable us to be in the world, interact with other people, and navigate complex communities. They can't be developed by thinking about what they are or studying them in the abstract. We wouldn't teach a child to swim with classroom lectures on Newton's laws of motion, minimizing drag, and aquadynamics. They can only learn to swim by jumping into water and swimming. We've talked in earlier episodes about how modern Western culture has privileged conceptual learning, abstract thinking, and knowledge that shows up easily in written assessments. If we want education to actually help young people grow into healthy human beings with the skills they'll need to thrive in the world as it's evolving, we have to go back to the principles that Josie Green and Jonathan Santos Silva identified in episode three. Young people can only become adaptable, flexible, empathetic, communicative, and collaborative if we allow them to go outside the walls of classrooms, engage with members of their communities across lines of difference, pursue real-world questions and challenges, solve problems alongside other people, succeed and fail and learn to persevere. Rather than being tacked on as additions to classroom-based learning, approaches like interdisciplinary projects, internships, and real-world learning need to become the core of young people's educational experiences. This points to an education system that values, enables, and celebrates what Annie Murphy Paul called the extended mind, our capacity to learn with and through our bodies in real-world contexts and alongside other people. She refers to these as embodied, situated, and distributed modes of cognition. My guest today is Jamie Cassop, the former education evangelist at Google, where he worked for 15 years. He launched Google Apps for Education, what we now know as Google Workspaces, in 2009. He then launched Chromebooks into schools, an idea that many at the time found crazy. Jamie speaks on education, digitalization, innovation, Generation Z, and the future of work at events around the world. As we move into the second half of this season, Jamie felt like the perfect person to ground us in a conversation about the future of work, technology, and the world young people will have to navigate. Thanks for joining us today, Jamie. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So I want to start with you as a person, right? I think who we are as people shapes the rest of our lives. So tell us a bit about you, Jamie. What was your pathway into being an education evangelist? Yeah, there's an old saying. I think it's a, a Latino saying. My grandmother used to say something like this, which is, you know, if you want to make God laugh, tell her your plans. Um, and it's, you know, it's, I'm sure there's a version of that in every single culture, which is this idea that we try to plan out our lives or we have this like master plan and it never turns out the way we think it's going to turn out. And in my case, you know, the plan that was supposed to be for me, the set plan was something I desperately didn't want anything to do with. So I am a 
uh, first generation American. I was born and raised in Hell's Kitchen, New York. Um, I grew up with a single mother. I grew up on uh, welfare and food stamps. I grew up on, you know, in, in Hell's Kitchen, New York, if you know anything about the history of New York City, uh, was not the nicest place in the 1970s and 1980s. It was uh, a desperate place. It was a crime-written place. So I grew up in that environment and um, wanted nothing to do with it. And I saw education as the way out. I saw education as my pathway, if you will. And so that's what I focused on. I graduated high school. I, grad I went to college. I graduated college. I went to graduate school. And I graduated from graduate school. And here I am talking to you because of education. And so my passion for education is personal. And my passion for what we can do with education is personal. And, and, and the opportunity that education provides to everyone. I ended up, you know, I spent 15 years at Google and got into the te education technology space by literally by mistake. And that's when when the the wheels started turning, where I saw the potential of technology and education and what we can do with it, and from there I I focused directly and specifically on the role that technology can play in education from the perspective of the way I grew up, which mm -hmm. is that technology is the the method of which we can use to really get out as much from education as we possibly can, especially given an environment where constant continuous learning is essential and will continue to be essential as we move into the future. So we definitely want to get to the future of education. This podcast is very much focused on how we really think transformatively. So moving from iterating on what I think we've always had to something that looks really different. But I'd love to start to to set some context um, and look at the bigger picture. So I have heard you say that in a hundred years, we're going to have about a thousand years of advancement um, mm -hmm. in technology because of the exponential nature of the change. Right. Um, I believe you said something like, we're going to look back in a hundred years and feel like we were cave people um, yeah. when it came to what we're doing. Um, so uh, say more about this uh, for yeah. our listeners. Yeah, no, look, we can do this with most anything. things. Actually, sitting on my kitchen table right now um, is, an, uh, I was doing some some organizing, and I found an old Sony Walkman. So think about just a Sony Walkman and saying to yourself, okay, I want to go and listen to music, or I want to go run to music, and putting on this giant cassette thing onto your arm with giant headphones. I mean, how do you not feel like a caveman with that? And then compare it to the way in which technology moves and in the way in which it will move in the future. And a lot of it has to do with um, what we're going to be doing with something like quantum computing, for example. And, and, and here's the example that I use that, that tends to floor people. But right before I left Google, Google had a breakthrough in quantum computing. If you take one of those mathematical equations and you... Uh, and, and you put it in, into the world's most powerful supercomputer, it would take that supercomputer 10,000 years to process that equation. Um, the, the breakthrough Google had with quantum computing is that their quantum computer did it in 200 seconds, wow. right? So 10,000 years versus 200 seconds. 
right? And so when you look at it that way, all of a sudden, then you start seeing real change and real movement in what we can do with technology. And now we're talking about things that you couldn't even imagine, right? Now we're talking about what we can do from a processing perspective, because that's really what technology is. It's about processing stuff, right? And if we can do that in the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, you're going to see the growth at a level that isn't even imaginable today. And so, yeah, you're going to see a thousand years of growth over the next hundred years where we are using the hundred year model right now, right? We look at the past hundred years and we say, look at where technology's moved in the last hundred years. And you think of it as a hundred years of evolution. Well, in the next hundred years, because of quantum computing and other technologies that we don't even know about yet, um, that, that, is, that you're going to see a thousand years of that kind of growth. And I have kids, you have kids, mm -hmm. but this generation of kids is navigating and trying to prepare for, be prepared for a world that is the one you just described. So mm -hmm. you talk a lot about generation Z, what, mm -hmm. what unique challenges are they going to face? And right. How do we need to change the way we educate young people to equip them to navigate those challenges and the, the completely unknown and unexpected successfully? Yeah, no, that's a great question because it leads to, you know, what the future of education is supposed to look like. And, and I think this is an interesting generation, right? Every generation is different. And, and it's funny, I have... Um, I created my own little marketing firm and I didn't even realize it, right? So I have a 29-year-old, a 21-year-old, and a 7-year-old. So I have one, uh, I have, I have one in every generation, right? Like I have, I have all three generations, um, that are in, ex ex you know, three generations on, in one family. Here's a, a couple of quick examples about this generation, right? We talk about this generation and their technology and how their phones make them anxious and how their, you know, their social media makes them anxious. And, 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 and yet we never talk about how this is a generation that is the first generation that is probably going to do worse than their parents. Um, they are the first generation where a college degree doesn't guarantee success at all, where, you know, we grew up, I grew up and I, you know, I'm old, but I grew up with this idea that you just go to college and get a piece of paper. doesn't matter what you're in. They grew up watching their parents, you know, be told work hard, go to work early, you stay late, put your effort in. And at the end, you're going to be able to retire and you're going to get a pension and we're going to take care of you for the rest of your life. And that's the agreement we have. They watch their mothers and fathers do that and then lose their jobs at 55 years old. Right. And before they, before they could retire, right. Before anything, any benefit came in at all. This generation is the generation of live shooter drills in schools since they're five years old, right? This is the generation of terrorism, and this is now the generation of pandemics, right? This is, so, so this idea that this is the world that we are creating for them, and somehow it's their phone that's create, you know, creating anxiety is insane to me. And so this generation sees the world differently. They are a problem-solving generation because, one, we put that on them, and, two, they don't have a choice, right? They see us and say, you guys screwed up the world, and now we have to fix it. And so this generation 
thinks about work in a different way. They don't see it in a passive way. They don't see it as a work is the way I I get money to buy big cars and big houses and and material things. They 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 don't see the world that way at all. They don't they don't value that, right? They it's a different generation and I know every generation says that, but they are different because the world is a different place. And more than anything, you know, in 1995, the world changed, right? That's when the internet became a thing. And 25 years ago, the world changed and fundamentally changed. And we are now living, living in a different world. And so what we're, they're preparing for is something completely different than what we prepared for when we were growing up. So in light of all that, right, so when it comes to your own children, your seven-year-old, yeah. right, who's still there, what do you want her to have access to knowing what you know and having learned what you've learned about the state of the world, the future of the world, and this generation, who they are, yeah. what they want? Yeah, what is right, it? Right. What do you want for her? Because it doesn't sound like it's what you got. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question and a fundamental question because, you know, I often talk about this and I did a keynote presentation for the Montessori, uh, the American Montessori Society a couple weeks ago. And the, um, and I said, you know, my kids in a Montessori school because that's where she belongs. She also has, you know, like I do, she has ADHD. And so Montessori schools are the perfect environment for her. I wish I had that. But what I said to this group is I could care. I don't think I could care less what subjects she learns. I don't care. I don't care what subject she's learning. We, again, this old mentality of everyone needs to know these things. Why? I think it's a scalable thing, right? Where in the early grades, right? Kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, you can say to a kid, what are you curious about? Let's go learn about that. And then create a, a guided, uh, a guided structure for learning about that subject. And then as she gets older, you can be more specific about topics and subjects that kids need to learn. And so I, what I want her to be able to do is to learn stuff, learn subjects, but what I really, really care about more than the subject itself is how she learns the subject. And so what I want her to be able to do is to build what I call human skills in school. And human skills are, you know, I, you know it's, to me it's, you know, problem management uh, or, you know, we can say, you know, problem solving, uh, collaboration, the ability to learn, creativity, uh, you know, those, those topics, right? The, the, the things that we've been talking about for a very long time. Actually, we used to call them 21st century skills. And so I want her to know and build those skills in whatever subjects that she is, she's in. So what I want to be able to pull out of school for my kid, for my seven-year-old is, is it, whatever subject she is in, is she problem solving? Is she collaborating? Is she building the ability to learn skills? Is she being creative? Like those are the assessment pieces that I want my kid to be able to go through in whatever subjects that she learns. So that's one thing. And then the other thing that I have a big hope for is that, that school or education uh, doesn't ruin math for her. because we turn math into a subject and and in her case she does not she doesn't know that math comes in subjects uh she believes that math is life right she believes that math is 
everything that's made in a man-made world and everything that's made in a natural world is explainable through math, right? Math can explain it all. And, to, you know, if I take this ball and throw it, there's a mathematical formula as to exactly, precisely where it's going to land. And the level of which you want to understand that uh, is how much math you should know, right? And so for her, she doesn't see addition and subtraction. She sees things and then ex ex that are explainable through math. That's what I want my kid to be able to do is to be able to uh, have uh, build the skills. You know, if you want to, you know, if you want to trigger me, call them soft skills. Uh, you know, they're they're not. Uh, so so I want her to be able to develop critical skills that she's going to need no matter what she does in the future. And I want her to be able to do it in a way uh, to, to think about school as a lab, right? To think about school as a place to be curious, to go experiment, to go learn, to, to, to create a safe environment where she can fail over and over and over again um, because the environment has been created to be able to do that. And, and mm -hmm. everything that we have set up for school is counter to that, right? Uh, everything's about assessments. Everything's about grades. Everything's about uh, pass or fail. And and you either fail or you succeed. And we don't live in that world. That world doesn't exist, right? We live in a world of iteration where whether something succeeds or not doesn't matter. You have to constantly keep making it better and stronger and all those other things. And so out of all of that, the most important skill that I want my seven-year-old to pull out of school is the ability to learn, right? That is the most important skill that we all need is the ability to learn. And it's a mindset. It's, it's inside your head. So, so I'll give you an example, right? I would never say, um, uh, so I get lots of people who say to me, um, lots of adults who say, you're very creative. I'm not very creative. Or they'll say, you know, Teach educators will say this all the time, right? I, you know, I'm just not good with technology. I'm just not tech savvy. I'm just not good with technology. Or, you know, you can say that about any subject. And my response to these folks, and these are adults with college degrees, and my response, and this is why I don't have a lot of friends, but my <laughs> response is, uh, no, no, no. Um, you have chosen not to be good with technology. You have chosen not to be good with math, you've chosen not to be creative. Because if you want to be those things, everything that you need to be good at those things is out there. And now it's just a matter of choice. And that's okay. It's okay that you choose not to do X. So as an example, you would never hear me say, uh, I'm, a, I'm a bad cook. No, I've just chosen not to be a good one. Right? That's not where I want to spend my time. That's not where I, what I want to be good at. Could I be a good cook? Sure. Could I be a five-star Michelin chef? Probably not, unless I put a lot of work and effort into it, but that's not what I want. And so for me, learning how to cook is something that I am capable of doing. I am capable of learning how to do it. I just don't want to be good at it. It's just not where I want to spend my time. So it's this mindset where the ability to learn becomes this ability to say, I don't know how to do something. I, I want to know how to do it. I now know where to learn how to do it. And then I know whether or not I've learned how to do it or not. Right. And it's that ecosystem that is self-contained that anyone can build and create for themselves. 
Mm-hmm. And that's the mentality that I want my seven-year-old to be able to do is never be able, never say, I don't know how to do something. Right. It's, and none of this is new stuff. Right. right. But the ability for her to be able to say, I haven't learned how to do that yet or, and, or I do, I am choosing not to learn how to do that because I am not interested in it. I don't want to, it doesn't impact me. Just to, to play devil's advocate here, right? Uh-huh. You're, you're talking to audiences, and I know you care about equity and racial justice. And the reality sure. is that some kids don't have opportunities and they haven't had experiences that allow them to succeed. And so part of the reform efforts of the last 20, 25 years have been, let's say there's a minimum, let's say there's a floor. And the standardization of education in many ways was an attempt to assure or ensure that every student had access to certain things. And what you're saying flies a little, could be seen as flying a little bit in the face of that because it might be that one kid says, you know, I'm really interested in learning about X and another student says no, and they'll come out knowing how to do and be different things. Is that okay? How do we square that with this sure. idea of equity? Yeah, yeah, no, again, and 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 I'm glad you asked, you brought that up because I think it's important, and, and I wasn't maybe very clear on this. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have standards. I'm not saying we shouldn't have expectations. I'm not saying that you know kids should go to school and learn whatever the hell they want to learn, right? That's not what, like I said, at the, in kindergarten and first grade, kids can learn whatever the hell they want to learn. Doesn't there's no nothing. Again, let me let me also emphasize this point, which is. I do want my kid to learn how to spell. <laughs> I want my kid to learn how to read. I want her to be able to to understand how to how to write, right? Like so I want her to read and write. And I want that to get better every year. And I work on that and she works on that. Every night we read a book together. I, I know no one's gonna believe this, but you can ask any of my kids. I have never looked at my kids' grades. Ever. Never looked at their report card. I I care more about that process that we're going through. So to be clear, I want my, nothing is more important than the ability to read, right? And so I want her to be able to read at a high level. And I want to know that she's constantly getting better at it. So I want the level of books being, getting better. I want her to read more. The more you read, the better it is. What I don't want is, if she had 20 minutes to sit and read a harder book, that is so much more valuable to me than doing some 40 problem worksheet that she's going to get graded on. That means nothing. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's the difference to me is that where we spend our time and energy. And so for my kids, I want them to read better and learn how to write better. And those things, my 21 year old, um, you know, re- reads, all the time. He, he actually doesn't like Kindles. I send him a, an audio. He doesn't even like audiobooks. He likes physical books. And so reading is really critical and important. So I want basic skills. And so, so if everyone, if we focused on that, if that was a baseline, if we did like everyone should be able to read, not at a level, because I, that's, that gets into a whole thing about like who gets to create these levels and what do they look like and why do we do assessments on those things and all these other things. But, we can have that debate, but yeah, so I want kids to know basic stuff, what I'm saying. And then on top of that, I want general categories. And I, like I said earlier, like I said before, as the grades get older, I want more structure and more guidance. Uh, in, in, like in first grade, it should be wide open. In third grade, it should be less wide open. In sixth grade, we should get more specific 
in, 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 in what kids learn. And in high school, you should learn these things based on the things that you're passionate and interested in, right? And so there is a structure, there are standards, there are expectations. So I'm not saying anything like that at all. What I'm saying is that the world is fundamentally changed, that what we need to be able to do is take the best ideas of what we have in education and what we've learned about education and take those ideas and apply them to a new model that we need to create mm-hmm. um, for the future that we face. So you've distinguished between problem solving and problem management. You talked about mm-hmm. them sort of interchangeably, but you, I heard you say, don't ask kids what they want to be when they grow up. Ask them what mm-hmm. problem they want to solve and mm-hmm. then ask them how they want to solve that problem, yeah. which seemed to all of a sudden open up kind of new vistas. So tell us a little bit more about yeah. that framework for you. Um, so the, it comes down to this, which is this idea that we ask kids what they want to be when they grow up. And and for my entire life, I've heard either people ask kids that question or people will say, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up or I'm doing something that I wasn't passionate about or, you know, work for life or life live to work. You know, all these different ideas around this concept. That question doesn't make sense anymore. I still ask, I still see people or I hear people ask my seven-year-old question that all the time. What do you want to be when you grow up? Um, so it's not that it's a bad question. It's just a wrong question for the world that we live in. So the better question is, you know, what problem do you want to solve? What's the problem that spins in your head? And oftentimes when you say that, especially to when you think about the audience that you have, is that it turns into a social problem, right? Like you think, what problem you want to solve? Oh, like it's world hunger or climate change or it, it doesn't have to. It can be how to make better microphones or how to make better stress balls or how to make better coffee. Or if you watch Shark Tank, right? Every single person who um, who walks into that tank is solving a problem, right? That's what they're doing. They're, they're, they're solving a problem that exists that you might not even know existed until you saw the product or solution that they came up with. And so asking them what they, what problem they want to solve, either they know, which is great because then there's enough follow-up question, which we'll talk about in a second, or they don't know. And now they can spend time trying to figure that out. So for me, for example, if I say the problem that I'm trying to solve is to build more, I can either say build more equity in education, or I could say to create more Jamies in the world, right? To create more kids. Cause you know, one of the things, one of the saddest things about my life and career is that I got to spend lots of time and energy in, in high level things. And I never really get to meet a lot of people like me. I don't get to meet a lot of people who have my background, right? And mm-hmm. in the, in the circles that I'm in. And so I can say the problem I'm trying to solve is by building more Jamie's in the world. Cause I think that's might be what's needed without, without making that sound arrogant. But, but the point, you know what I mean? Like more, more diversity out there. And, and so, um, I can solve that problem. Uh, I can solve it in early education in middle school. I can solve it in high school. I can solve it in college. I can solve it in the workplace. I can solve it in investment. I can solve it in there's so many different places that I can solve that problem. So that's why the second question becomes important. Right. So it's what problem you want to solve. And then the second question is, how do you want to solve it? How do you want to take your talents, your experiences, um, your passions and solve that problem? Right. So if a student comes to you and says, I want to solve climate change, I'm scared. Right. Like I forget what the number is. I think it's like 82 percent of Generation Z kids believe that climate change will impact them in their lifetime Mm -hmm. if it hasn't already. Right. So let's say. Kid comes to you and says, I want to solve climate change. Well, 
traditionally, the response and what you might say is, oh, climate change, you need to go be a scientist. You need to go study global sustainable development. You need to go get a degree in environmental science, right? You need to study STEM, right? That's what we would tell that kid. But what if that student is a talented photographer? The way they can solve climate change is by going out and photographing the climate. They can go out by creating uh, documentation of climate, of what's happening with the climate. They can go out by creating, uh, if they're a, a gifted educator, creating educational programs around climate change. Mm -hmm. The point is that there are millions of ways to solve a problem. You don't have to solve it in one way, right? There are many, many ways to solve problems. So how do you want to solve it matters. And most students don't know themselves. They don't know what they're good at. They don't know what their skills are. They don't know what they're passionate about, right? So, so spending time with young people and helping them figure that out is absolutely critical. And then the third question in that process is, um, what do you need to know to solve that problem? What are the knowledge, skills, and abilities you need to have to solve that problem? And it might make sense that they do need to know environmental studies. They might have to take classes. They might have to get a degree in environmental studies. Who knows? But the point is that what do you need to know? What are the knowledge, the skills, and the abilities that you need to have to solve that problem? And do you have those knowledge, skills, and abilities? And how do you build those knowledge, skills, and abilities? And that's where the ability to learn becomes critical because you have to be able to determine, I know I, I have enough to be able to do this, or I know enough, or I need to learn more and then move in that direction. And so those three questions together help form for me kind of like the future of work, if you will, right? Like what's the problem that I'm trying to solve? How am I solving it? Me personally. Mm -hmm. And then what am I learning? And what do I need to know to solve that problem? And so this kind of points to, right, how many careers is everyone going to have over the course of their lifetime? That the, right. that the answer to those questions may change, probably will change for many people. So I'm curious, like you were talking about what seemed more like inquiry-based education in yeah. K-12, and many people can understand what that means. But what are your thoughts on the future of post-secondary education? And you named a few things, right? Students in this generation have seen that the piece of paper doesn't get you a job. You're often in debt, and they don't want to be in debt. Right. They kind of understand. So what do you see as some of the future of post-secondary education? Um, and, you know, what does it look like in practice? Do you have an example of a place that you think is at the forefront of this different way of thinking about, you know, college for all or four-year college for all, whatever it is? Right. Yeah. So, so I think the first thing we can do is, 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 um, is change some, some of the words. And, and words matter and how we phrase things matter. Um, and I think we can stop talking about higher education and start talking about higher learning. Right. And, and I think that that's a fundamental thing because all of a sudden what we need to realize is that the current education that we provide students up to grade 12, up to and including grade 12, is not sufficient for the future that we have. It's just not right. There needs to be more time, more effort. The, the, the reason we have this cutoff point at the end of 12th grade or, you know, at the end of high school is that there are lots of different ways to go from there, right? You don't have to necessarily um, go get a degree. You don't have to, um, you know, you want to start, you want to open up a convenience store, then going out and getting a college degree doesn't ma matter. But there, I think 
you know, we get into these, these debates about whether or not college is a necessity or whether we need kids to go to college. But, but I think if we focused on the idea of higher learning, I think we can all agree that whatever it is that you learn up to and including high school is not enough, mm-hmm. right? And that we need higher learning. And so how we get that higher learning can be in lots of different ways. And so that becomes the focus of higher education to me is the higher learning component. And so I work with a number of higher education institutions. I was out in West Virginia um, a couple weeks ago uh, working with a team. And, and, and I think what higher education institutions have been missing is they've been missing um, how to tell the story of the value proposition that they bring to the table. They've been so defensive about who they are and their existence that they've missed the opportunity to talk about their value, the value proposition that they bring. There's a lot of work that you can do, but one of the things that I, when I work with college presidents, I say to them all, you know, when I talk about like what problem you want to solve, I say, can you imagine a student showing up to a website and, and for the most part, what a student sees the first time they go to a college website is exactly what you and I saw, you know, for me, in my case, 75 years ago when I was in college, <laughs> right? It's a 10 minute video of, of, of college life and all the different majors and programs. Like their measurement is we offer 150 different programs, right? That's their measure. Instead, imagine, first of all, 10-minute video, like, there are, there's no 60-year-old watching a 10-minute video about campus life. There's just, yeah, that's, that's like a motion, that's like a, that's like a Netflix series to a 16-year-old, right? A 10-minute video, right? So, imagine instead of a student going to a website and it just says, just right on the front page there, it says, what problem do you want to solve? Come here. And let's solve it together. We're going to help you develop the knowledge, skills, and abilities that you need to solve that problem. And if you don't know, great. We're going to help you develop that too. Right? Like, why wouldn't you go there? I'd go there tomorrow. Right? And so there's so much opportunity to do so much good work in in the higher learning space. Yeah. Although you would like that to be the true in K-12 as well. Um, and so what do you think in this vision, right? You've sort of painted a picture of what education could be. So what's the highest and best use of technology in moving us towards that? And how does it compare to what you are seeing and how people are using technology right now? Yeah, that's a good question. It's a good question because Fundamentally, what it comes down to is that technology has nothing to do with this, right? That technology is just a thing. That techno- you know, I, I, I often talk about, you know, this idea that, you know, we talk about technology as uh, technology is coming to replace your job, right? Technology is taking over your job. Technology has always done that. It's, always, it's, it's done that since the Industrial Revolution, right? And... And so it becomes this thing where you we tend to focus on the technology component of it when it has nothing to do with any of this, right? So, you know, I don't hear people complaining about, you know, how cars, you know, took over all the stagecoach work, right? Like that was out there, right? Or or I don't hear I don't see horses complaining about how they lost their jobs to these, you know, iron horses, you know, that were that were built. 
it, it technology's always moved forward and we've always used technology um to replace current systems we've always used technology to 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 help what we currently do technology is you know is a is this pen this pen is technology anything can be technology and so we end up getting caught up with trying to define what technology is when in reality um it's anything you know i get the question you know one of my favorite questions i used to get all the time you know 10 years ago was show me how technology improves education right that's a question i get all the time i'm like okay um, I will, but first you show me how textbooks improve education, <laughs> right? Show me how desks improve education. Show me how pens improve education. These are all tools. These are just tools. And so when we think about them as tools, what ends up happening is that they become the best tool that you can use for that scenario, but it doesn't, it's just a tool. It doesn't, it doesn't have any value on its own. It is a tool that you use to do X. And so what we need to think about are what are the best ideas that we have in education? Forget technology, forget, uh, you know, uh, uh, different learning models. What evidence do we have around what good learning is? What does it look like? And then ask ourselves, how do we use technology to bring these ideas to life? Instead of thinking about, here's a technology, what do we do with it? No. What, what's a great idea in learning? And then how do we use technology to bring those things out? <laughs> and so it's a different way to think about how we think about technology in the education space because we, it keeps us away from focused on the technology versus the teacher and whether or not technology is going to replace teachers and gets us to focus more on this idea that technology has no value on its own and it's just a tool that we can use in, in, in uh, building good learning models that we know work in education. All right, next to last question. Um, All right. You've got a lot of funders listening to this. Yeah. So how can funders best contribute to kind of moving in the direction that you're talking about and sort of do as a result of listening to what you've just said? Huh. A different way to think about that is what do you think that they've done in the past that hasn't been such a great idea? <laughs> but right. that might be a less asset-based framing. <laughs> you know, here's a question to ask. I'm sure you, everyone in a nonprofit world thinks about this all the time which is how many mergers and acquisitions have you seen in a nonprofit world, right? Um, not a lot. Why? Well, how is that possible? And the reason I think that's important is because you end up funding or being part of a nonprofit space, not because it's a needed space, but because somehow it feeds the person who started the organization, right? And, and so asking some hard questions or being hard with some, you know, some founders and saying, look, it, and maybe this is what's missing in a, in a nonprofit world, uh, which is, hey, your nonprofit does, you, you know, I just read through your thing and your nonprofit says it does these three things. Well, we ran it through our new system that we just built, you and I just built together, which is 12 other organizations have been identified that do the same thing. 
So why don't you merge? We'll fund you, but you need to merge with that other organization. What would be the response to that? Oh, not happy. No. And <laughs> like so you ask yourself, is it really about the solution or is mm. it about the person um, who runs the organization? Mm. Right? And and so, you know, now we're getting into some real conversation at the end here about like what's real or not, right? Like maybe what we need to do is spend more time focused on making sure that the money that we're investing is actually going to, to solve problems and not feed egos. Right. Um, and, 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 you know, that happens a lot. That's great. Well, thank you, Jamie, so much for your time. It was great to talk to you and um, look forward to seeing what your, what your, next education evangelist uh, kind of pathway creates for you and what you do. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was fun. Thanks for listening. The Future Smart Podcast is a project of Grantmakers for Education and is made possible through the support of our generous member sponsors. If you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and follow us on social media. You can find links to resources related to today's episode in the show notes. More episodes and events can be found at edfunders.org. To learn more about the future of smart, visit ulca.com, U-L-C-C-A.com.